So I want you all to just take a moment. Think about three words or phrases that you would use to describe yourself. Honestly. Don't think of this as a sales pitch. We're not trying to sell ourselves to some higher being. An honest description of yourself. Now, take a look at the person to your left and your right. If I told you to describe them in the same manner, an honest description of them, by the way, knowing that they'll never know how you describe them, what would you say? Don't say it. Think about it. Three words or phrases to put into words the most honest description of the person sitting next to you. Now, how would you describe me? Again, don't say it. I don't want to know. <laughs> Most of you know me fairly well. If nothing else, I've been the music director here for approaching eight years. Long enough for most of you, I'd say, to form some sort of relatively realistic opinion of me. <sighs> it's terrifying. <clears throat> so... Thinking about all of those labels and presumptions that we've just placed on ourselves and on each other, how do you think the person next to you described themselves? I'm doing a little mental juggling here. Bear with me. Do you think your description of them matched their descriptions of themselves? Do you think the person next to you gave you all positive characteristics when they were describing you? Or do they know that maybe you cuss a little bit too much sometimes? Or maybe you honk your horn too quickly in traffic? Maybe they would have described you in a slightly different light than you would have described yourself? And what labels did you give me? Again, don't tell me. I'll tell you, I define myself as a woman with a big heart who's kind of awkward and really take charge. Other people call me bossy. Right, honey? <laughs> so I'm willing to bet that all of our descriptions, if verbalized, don't verbalize them, if verbalized, would have been completely different than the way that we describe ourselves. Let's just bask in that awkwardness for a second. So this little exercise I, I roughly designed to highlight two things. The first being that we receive labels and presumptions from everyone around us all the time. Whether it's sitting in these pews this morning, now you know everybody's judging you and labeling you. and. <laughs> <laughs> but also by watching commercials on TV or seeing those targeted ads on our Facebook feeds. And the second being the fact that really the only thing we can truly control is what we actually do, how we identify, and how we describe ourselves. You can't control what I'm thinking about you right now. So I don't, I don't think any of you would have described yourselves in a way that, didn't, that you didn't actually believe, right? How you described yourself would be 
what you truly believe in. So why do we let ourselves in our day-to-day lives do exactly that? We let other people define us. Now, I'm not going to stand up here this morning and quote these inspirational posters from the break room wall or read you that inspirational post from your third cousin's semester abroad roommate's Facebook hashtag real talk. Like if you agree. I think Peter Friedrich's friend Rose summed all of this up pretty well when she responded to his sage advice about being herself with, of course I've got to be myself, everyone else is already taken. Just like, duh. Right? But then in practice, we still let ourselves be shaped by those around us. As humans, we naturally like to put things into silos. Black and white, liberal and conservative, gay and straight, millennial and baby boomer. We've been talking about these labels throughout the whole summer. How we use these labels, both good and bad, to affect our interactions with one another. How labels may change our expectations of each other. And in some instances, from the position of dispelling those labels and highlighting our likenesses. But I'd like to challenge you to think of it from a different angle. One that encourages us to embrace those labels, however we'd like, and to use those to our advantage. Using our uniqueness, using our quirkiness, using our mundaneness, to live our most authentic lives. And why is that so important? Of course, this is way easier said than done. And I don't have miracle advice about, or advice that would make a path to enlightenment suddenly clear and precise. I'm not going to stand here and pretend that I have the answers as to how we do that. But what I can do is offer you some whys, not questions but reasons as to why I think it's so important and why I think that you should think so too. In order to be the best community that we can be, whether in the small scale within our church walls here or on a larger scale in the communities throughout the world around us, as Unitarians, we can't be expected to follow our third and fourth Unitarian Universalist principles fully without first turning them inward on ourselves. Who knows the third and fourth principles off the top of their head? (laughs) I got you, don't worry. (laughs) Our third principle states, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth within our congregations. And our fourth principle states, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I'd like to think that by being here in these pews, I know it's a huge assumption that we all agree, but we want to uphold these principles in the best way we individually deem how. Seems right, right? Now I want you to think about this practically. 
I'm using our principles in a very practical manner. Wouldn't it be awfully hypocritical of us and almost unfair of us to turn to our neighbors in light of principle three and encourage them to grow spiritually, to ask that they, uh, to ask the questions that they don't know the answers to, to come upon answers they might not have sought and might not have been prepared for, and to face the confusions and the scary unknowns of their spiritual journey. Wouldn't it be unfair for us to ask them of that while just sitting back and letting somebody else take control of what we do? Can we ask them to follow principle three? Can we truly encourage them if we're too afraid to take that risk on our own? That's really like pushing them into a pool and just saying, ah, they'll figure out how to swim when you don't actually even know how to swim yourself. How can you be so sure that they're going to know how to swim? Unless we first take that scary initial step, unless we face those trials and tribulations, unless we stick out our necks and ask those questions and face those scary unknowns ourselves, how can we truly and fairly encourage those around us to be risk takers and to grow? Now on to the fourth principle, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. How can we say honestly that we are seeking truth and meaning when we let someone else define our lives, define what's right and wrong, and to define what's okay to do and not to do, what's o- how it's okay to dress, what's okay to sing or not sing? Something I know that I hear from media talking heads of all creeds and beliefs is that this side or that side are nothing but sheep. They're doing what they're told to do. They're following blindly because of this reason or that reason. I know I don't need to go into detail when I'm explaining that. I know each and every one of you has somebody just popped into your head saying those words, right? You heard a voice saying something along those lines with or without the word sheeple included. Well, isn't that exactly what happens when you let someone else define your truth and path? If you let someone else label you and define your path, then it's no longer a free and responsible uh, responsible search. It's a restricted, closed-minded, controlled view of life. So you can either be that person with everyone else, Or you can decide that maybe that isn't the right way to go. Seeking your truth takes courage and determination. It takes a lot to break from the crowd to find your own way. Sometimes you end up in the same place in the end. Let's be honest. Sometimes you take a scenic route and you end up at the same location where you started. You get lost in the woods. You come upon a beautiful waterfall. You slip on a mossy rock. You climb up a boulder only to notice that down below is where you started. You've gone in a big circle. And that's okay. That's fine. Wasn't it fun getting there? Didn't you see much more? Didn't you learn so much more? 
So to live up to our fourth principle, doesn't it sound like we need to work hard to find our way instead of letting somebody else tell us how to get there? It at least sounds much more fulfilling. So those are just some practical whys. You know, to truly and honestly be able to uphold our third and fourth principles, we need to be ourselves and define ourselves. Now, I'm a fan of metaphors and similes. I like to use them to paint pictures to help in understanding. You should see me during choir rehearsals. <laughs> there, uh, pretty much anybody who's been to a choir rehearsal knows that I use stories and I practically act out entire Shakespearean plays at some points to try to get a point across. There's, sometimes there's a, a part of a song that I want the singers to emphasize to get a certain message to you. Anyway, uh, so knowing that, I'm not going to act out a big scene or anything like that, but I do want to use music to remind you of one more why. Stepping away from our principles and using something perhaps more tangible, something hopefully we can relate to a little more directly. It should come to no surprise to any of you that I can't really find a better example of a why that I've tried to show you this morning than by talking about a big and beautiful and complex group of musicians and instruments all tied up in a pretty little bow called the orchestra. So an orchestra is defined as a large group of instruments. Thanks, Merriam-Webster. Different types of orchestras are made up of different types of instruments, different configurations and ratios, etc., etc. But for the sake of this example, we're going to use the general modern-day orchestra. It's made up of several different sections, which, in this example, I would like for you to think of in terms of the silos that we find ourselves divided into every day from the people around us, from the media, online, anything. Think about all of our various silos that we're put into that I mentioned earlier. In the orchestra, we have five different silos. We have the woodwinds, the brass, the percussion, the strings, and the keys. These are five neat little sections that do very accurately define what an orchestra is. Just as our labels mentioned, um, or the, the ones that we give each other, are, they neatly sort us into comfortable and probably, in the more general sense, relatively accurate sections. However, don't forget, each one of those sections isn't made up of just one instrument. You're not going to find an orchestra whose woodwind section is just ten clarinets. You're not going to find a brass section that's just 10 trombones. You're definitely not going to find a string section of just 50 harps, even though that would be super cool. Can you imagine all those harps? Mm. So <laughs> the closer you look at an orchestra, the more you begin to realize that each one of those sections is made up of a diverse number of instruments. And each instrument has its own purpose. 
The 10 woodwinds, that pretty little package, those are really made up of two flutes, three oboes, three clarinets, a bassoon, and a saxophone. Those 10 brass, those are really three French horns, three trumpets, three trombones, and a tuba. And those 50 strings, as much as I would love for them to be 50 harps, they're not. They're one harp, 15 first violins, 14 second violins, 10 violas, 6 cellos, 2 double basses, and 2 classical guitars. And then if you look even more closely, you would see that each one of those instruments is made up of principals or concert masters, the leads, the ones who provide the tuning note, those who are those who determine bowings, those who lead the entrances for their sections, those playing unique but not solo parts. You see how the closer we look, the more it breaks down? When you look closely enough, the orchestra is a big, complex, confusing, chaotic mess. And yet, when each individual plays their part... When each flute plays the flute part instead of the oboe part, when the harp plays the harp part instead of trying to somehow play the timpani, when the leads lead and when the supports support, when each instrument does what it is uniquely created to do, the chaos turns into something astounding. They create harmonies and melodies They create emotion, and they tell stories. They transform from something messy into something beautiful. We are that orchestra. It's time to play your part. Sure, the world around us will put us into those silos and will define us into those sections in the simplistic view But if we know what we are, if we are true to ourselves and play our unique part, if we let our true lives shine, then we make up the most beautiful orchestra, a truly authentic humanity. Please stand as you're willing and able and join us in singing hymn number 118, This Little Light of Mine. 